Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, meaning it is time for our next president, making this week's book of the week, Herbert Hoover, A Life by Glenn Jeanson. The accompanying cocktail is called Big Chief. It is two ounces of bourbon, a half ounce of a Verne, well, it's a half ounce of Amer, and a half ounce of Pontemez with an orange slice for garnish. Just for the record, Hoover's favorite cocktail was actually a martini, but I already made a martini once and did not care for it. So I had to find an alternative that I hadn't tried and might be able to enjoy. So let's do this. Our 31st president, Herbert Clark Hoover, was born around midnight on the night of August 10th and 11th, 1874. Now, these days they'd mark an exact time of birth and that would be his birth date. But back in 1874, he could pick the day that he wanted to celebrate on and go with that. So while history usually says he was born on August 10th, Hoover himself usually celebrated on August 11th. He was born in West Branch, Iowa to Jesse Hoover and Holda Randall Minthorn. Hoover had an older brother, Tad, with whom he was quite close, and a younger sister, May, with whom he was not close. In fact, the two brothers kind of wrote her off as her life went in an opposite direction of theirs. It's not really covered too much, other than at one point when Hoover was... Um, kind of courting his his soon his wife or his fiance, she was trying to interject and get him to marry somebody else, which he did not appreciate. That's basically the major cause of the rift. Now the Hoover kids were sixth generation Quakers, and they were raised in a close knit Quaker community. Bertie, as he was known as a kid, was six when his father died in 1880, and nine when his mother died in 1874. The uh, three Hoover children were split among relatives in the Quaker community in Iowa, and the estate was split equally among them, with each inheriting like $784 and $1884. I, I didn't do the inflationary rate on that one. I maybe should have, but I didn't. Approximately one year later, his mother's brother, uh, Dr. Henry John Minthorn, who had once saved Bertie's life by administering CPR when Bertie stopped breathing as a result of a crew coughing fit, determined that he wanted to adopt Bertie. Uh, Minthorn's son had died recently and the Minthorn family was kind of looking to fill the void. Not as a replacement per se, but they were suddenly able to afford an extra mouth and family helps family. That, that's at least they used to and in the Quaker community I think they still do. So he was, and at first I wasn't sure if they wanted to take him that far away from his siblings. I mean, none of the siblings were adopted into the same household because no one family could afford three extra mouths to feed, but they were at least still in the same community and could see each other. And what, what finally tipped the scales in favor of Dr. Minthrow's request to adopt uh, was the educational opportunities, right? Doctor, medical doctor. So he, he was well-educated himself and in a position to provide a better educational opportunity for Bertie. And so Bertie was packed off to Portland, Oregon, where he lived with his uncle's family um, until he became an adult. Oh no, no, I spilled on my book. Blasphemy. He... Da, 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 da. Now Bertie eventually became Bert and was raised with the very best of all that Quaker community had to offer. I mean, he firmly believed that all beings were equal, men, women, children, black, white, Chinese, indigenous. He, he didn't care. Uh, he was raised to treat everyone the same. And that certainly came very much from his Quaker beliefs and from his family. His uncle that adopted him had been a, uh, a dragon driver, a wagon driver on the Underground Railroad. And so those core beliefs were instilled in him and, and he lived that belief every day. 
And uh, that early teaching stood him in very good stead over the absolutely incredible career that he would lead. And buckle up, kids, because it gets fucking crazy from here. So I'm going to stir this up. And then I try not to set my office on fire as I flame an orange peel. So let's stir first. Oh no, I left the lid to this, so I don't have any way to strain the ice out. I'm just going to have to... Yeah, that's how that's done. So... In 1891, Hoover learned that a new school was opening up in, up in Palo Alto, California by uh, millionaire U.S. Senator Leland Stanford. Now, while Hoover's family wanted him to go to a solid Quaker school back east, Hoover wanted to study mining engineering. And the school in Indiana that his family wanted him to go to, the Quaker school, did not offer a degree in mining engineering. Now, what finally tipped the scales and allowed him to... Uh, go to school in, in Stanford where he wanted to go is that Stanford's newly hired um, president was Dr. David Starr Jordan, a Quaker, uh, who actually left Indiana State, or the, the Indiana University, to come and be president of... Oh, I'm just going to stab myself. I just know it. This is like a catastrophe waiting to happen for me. All right. I've never done this before. We're not actually burning the peel. We're supposed to flame the underside presumably to release oils, express the oils in the cocktail, and then drop this in. So much for expressing oils. I see nothing dropping in there other than the peel. There we go. Now, unluckily for Hoover, while he passed most of the required entrance exams, he failed English composition. Uh, he showed so much promise that he was determined, that it was determined that he could study and test again just before classes started. Then he failed the test again. But again, he did so well on everything else, so it showed so much promise and came with such high recommendations that it was determined that as long as he passed English comps sometime in the next four years, he was in. So now there was still the problem of money. His uncle had not charged him any room or board for adopting him, which sounds like a kind of no-duh situation in the 21st century, but the 19th century was not, it was kind of unusual. Um, half the time people would adopt just to get free labor, but his uncle had taken that $784 of his inheritance, which he could have literally taken as an adoption fee, believe it or not, and uh, saved it for Hoover, which certainly helped, but was not enough even for a school that was not yet Ivy League, which is Ivy League in the making. Um, so Hoover had to work his way through college, which he did with a great deal of joy. And he was so bright, so promising, just a leading figure on campus in many ways. And his professors loved him and Hoover made lifelong friends and his good nature and willingness to work earned him many advocates in his corner. And he would always give back to Stanford as a result of this, um, it, mostly because those advocates that when he was failing English comp at year four and was looking to basically fail out of college because of this, uh, they went to bat for him and pointed out that he was so profoundly precise in his scientific papers that the problem was simply he didn't test well in English comp. They had him re-edit one of his own scientific papers, and he was granted a pass in English composition, and thus Hoover joined the first class to graduate Stanford in 1895. Now, unfortunately for him, the country was still in the financial panic that sparked in 1893, and Hoover couldn't find a job as a mining engineer. They didn't need engineers. They needed, you know, miners. So he went out and became a miner. Hmm. It's a little bitter. Which makes sense. The Mara and Punta May are both bitter liqueurs. The orange has an interesting kick. Hmm. It's okay. 
Um, so he worked in the mines for a little bit, swinging a pickaxe, like a literal miner. But it wasn't long before he began working for Louis Janine, a French-born mining engineer, and Hoover's work ethic so impressed Janine that in October 1897, when the British mining firm Bwick Mooring asked Janet for a uh, recommendation for mining engineer of, quote, at least 35 years of age to manage 10 gold mines in Australia, Janine didn't even hesitate. He recommended Hoover, advising Bwick Mooring that Hoover was, quote, not quite 35, but was definitely who they wanted. Um, Hoover, for the record, was 23 years old, so he was definitely not quite 35. He, like, grew a beard on his way to England, because even though it obviously would have made more sense to take a boat from San Francisco to Australia, he needed to actually meet with his employer, so he took a train across the, across the United States, shipped over to England, and then a ship down from England into Australia grew a beard to try and hide the fact that he was a decade younger than they had asked for. Even without interviewing him, I mean, he needed to meet with them before going, but they hired him just on this recommendation of Jannon's and offered him the job at $150 per week, which, this is nut bars, adjusted for inflation in 2024 comes to $5,573 per week. Right out of college. Now, this was money well spent for Bewick Mooring, believe it or not. Sounds absolutely absurd, um, but in the very short time that Hoover was in Australia, he was there for a year. <laughs> um, he, he, he located and recommended that they purchase a two-third interest in the Sons of Gualia mine, and it was basically a hunch, right? I mean, it was shown to him by the, the people who owned it, and they just didn't have the cash to, to drill it and really mine it. And he, he looked around, he did his assessments, and he said, yeah, you should definitely purchase a two-third interest in this mine. And for that, Bewick Mori was able to extract $55 million in gold bullion over the life of the mine, which was from 1896 until about 1963. So that was a very good investment on their part, paying him that sum, that, that salary. And uh, he earned bonuses, moved up in the country, and this lucky find early in his career lucky. Don't get me wrong, I think there was a lot of luck in his life, but he was also very good. So it was a combination of right time, right place, good fortune. A lot of things went into his life, but this made Hoover an absolute legend in the mining industry. And it was while he was working in Australia that he earned one of his nicknames. That would follow him all of his life. That was a chief. Um, people who worked with him would call him chief all his life. Even people who worked with him when he was president called him chief. So big chief cocktail. Uh, the other nicknames were the Great Humanitarian, Napoleon of Mercy, and Samaritan to a Continent. But those nicknames are still about 20 years in the future, and also I couldn't find cocktails with those names, so Big Chief it is. Because I don't like martinis. I like chocolate martinis. Regular martinis are disgusting. Now, Hoover began moving up the ranks of Bewick Mooring, and in November 1898, he was appointed managing director of all mines under control of the Chinese government, which came with a salary increase plus one-fifth of all profits from all these Chinese mines. Uh, this job also included a food stipend, lodging, transportation, and servants. Before taking up his new position, so, you know, uh, I forget what the salary increase was, but it was a certain percentage above the $150 a week he was already earning, plus the one-fifth. Um, before going there, though, he returned to the United States and picked up his bride, Lou Henry. Now, Lou was like two years behind Hoover at Stanford, and in his same field of study, he actually tutored her for a while, uh, making her one of the first women, and I believe the first first lady, to graduate with a degree in a STEM field. So, 
yeah and she was impressive in her own right like I want to read a book on her because she was also amazing uh, Lou would follow Hoover for the remainder of her life and I, I don't say that like it's a bad thing it wasn't this was very much a love match between them and a match made in heaven she didn't just follow him she worked beside him including going into the mines when needed and she was an, an outstanding asset not just for her shared interest in the mining and geology because she was quite gifted in languages, which Hoover was not, and would often tra often translate for him. Uh, she even learned Chinese, became fluent in Chinese, and would act as her husband's translator while they were in China. Now, for anyone remotely in the know with history, about the time Hoover actually got to China via ship, because planes were not a thing in 1898-1899, so basically while he was traveling to China, the Boxer Rebellion kicked off. And it really started right when he got there. Mostly this did not impact his job as immediately because his job had him traveling all over China, checking out various mines so he would basically travel to where the fighting wasn't. Um, and he would find good sources of lesser metals like lead, tungsten, you know, um, tin, copper. I know he found copper, uh, but no gold. And the Chinese government wanted gold mines only. So he just kept traveling. But eventually, the Boxer Rebellion caught up with him at Tientsin. Now, again, for those of you in the know, this is kind of intense. Tientsin was kind of the last stand, the last gasp. It was a bit of a siege situation, and Hoover was in the thick of it. Now, Hoover recognized the danger of the Boxer forces. He set about creating rudimentary fortifications and made sure that everybody was inside those fortifications, including the Chinese people under his control, or under his command, I don't want to say control, under his command. Um, he didn't just make it for white people only, he made sure everybody was safe. And it's a tight spot to be, to be in. I mean, the Boxers were not by professional soldiers by any metric, but they were absolutely dangerous just from their sheer numbers. And that didn't stop Hoover from making daily trips outside the fortifications to fetch enough drinking water for everyone inside of the walls, including all of the Chinese workers that were stuck with them. While he was making these runs out to the wells, he would get projectiles lobbed at him. And uh, one of the volleys once made it over the wall and blew out the side of a building where Lou was playing solitaire. And she just kept playing because this just became their normal. I mean, the Hoovers are like my new favorite it couple. I mean, can you imagine being so sang Freud about it as that you just keep playing solitaire when a bomb blows out part of the building you're sitting in? Fucking amazing. Legends. Absolute legends. Now, eventually, the rebellion was put down and the Hoovers managed to hang in there long enough for the USMC, that's right, Marine Corps, to roll in and save the day as part of a joint military operation. I have a typo here. I have to fix this. And uh, by 1901, the Hoovers had relocated to England, where Hoover was offered a partnership in Bewick Mooring because, hey, he was a hell of an asset to have in a mining company. And then even there, his reputation preceded him in all the best possible ways. I mean, he was very much known as a man of his word. And when one of the company accountants committed fraud and embezzlement, while the company was found legally not liable and in fact were termed victims by the courts, Hoover and the other partners determined that they were morally liable and paid back the investors who had also been defrauded. This put quite a drain on his accounts and almost wiped him out, but he managed to earn it back in spades. And by the time he retired from Bewick Mooring in 1908 to become an independent consultant, he, his fortune was back in spades. And when he retired, retired at 40 years of age in 1914, it was with a fortune somewhere between $4 million in the bank and up to $30 million in investments and stocks, having accepted payment for much of his consulting and stock options. Um, for the record, in 20, 
I have another typo. Good job, Katrina. In 2024 dollars, that four million is 124 million. So uh, he was good to retire from everything and live the sweet life in Palo Alto when the Great War kicked off. And then here is where he earned the rest of the nicknames. As the war kicked off, he recognized the hardest hit populations would be the civilians who had no say in what was going on, and he organized food charities to feed the continent, starting with Belgium, which had a starving civilian population while German troops rolled through. And basically, he had no passport. There was no nation sponsoring him. This was a neutral action undertaken by him on his behalf and on behalf of the charity he founded. Um, just his word and his signature basically on a blank piece of paper saying that he was relief aid only, he was able to get massive grain imports into Belgium. And to ensure that they went to the civilian populations that they were intended to help and not to the military, who he said he was neutral, he can't aid either side of the military, he's there to help the civilians, um, he made it so that they could only get fed at the actual soup kitchens. And this is smart because it ensures, first off, that the people who need it get the help. Second, it ensures that no one person is going to come in, confiscate the grain, and then sell it at exorbitant black marketeer rates. So he was able to feed the nation of Belgium. And then after feeding Belgium, he basically fed the rest of Europe. He, he would go into all of the beleaguered nations as, as the armies moved through and get food to them, using diplomacy and charitable contributions. And when the war was over, he turned those surplus charitable contributions over to the overarching charity in Belgium. I forget the name of it, but it's in the book for educational purposes. So, um, Belgium fucking loves Hoover. <laughs> so does Europe. For a while, Russia did too, because he also fed Russia following the Bolshevik Revolution. He did not approve of Lenin or the socialists or communism, but he recognized people were starving. And for a while, he was recognized as a good person, but of course, eventually, he was scrubbed from Russia's history books because they can't admit that an evil capitalist came in and saved their people from starving when they couldn't do so themselves. So, delightful. Um, now, following this triumph, he was, of course, immediately invited to join Hardy's cabinet, which he did as Secretary of Commerce. Um, it's One thing I do want to point out is... is um, the book I read a few months back about Woodrow Wilson said that he asked Hoover to step up and do this. He did not. Hoover was doing this on his own well before the United States ever became embroiled in World War I. All right? He just happened to already be doing it before and the United States offered absolute sanction for his actions. So he was already doing this on his own. He was the Secretary of Commerce under both Harding and Coolidge before becoming president in 1928, which was, of course, just in time for the markets to crash. Now, Hoover was a profoundly smart man. He had been warning people for a while that things were untenable on the stock market, and in the summer of 1929, he began to divest himself of his stocks. Uh, this was all legal. It's still legal today. I don't believe there was any indication of insider trading, not that the uh, FTC existed at the time, but by October 1929, the slow trickle of people offloading their stocks became a flood and the market crashed entirely, ushering in America's entry to the Great Depression. Now, something not talked about frequently is that Europe and Asia had entered the Depression at least a year before Germany, well before that. They were in the Depression almost from the time of the end of, of the Great War. And that's kind of what it means by great. It means large in quantity, not excessively good. And the damn thing lasted a decade, at least he, here in the United States. Now, for Hoover, he, he tried. He tried. 
Uh, his concern was that he didn't want to create a massive bureaucracy because he knows it's really easy to build one and damn near impossible to dismantle a bureaucracy. So while Public Works expanded under Hoover, he was careful to decentralize it and send those Public Works to where the jobs were needed. So he you know, took a look at unemployment rates and said, okay, we have massive unemployment at this section of the country, we're going to build roads here. We have massive unemployment in this section, we're going to build a dam here, something like that. And um, that was great from the perspective of not building a bureaucracy, not great from the perspective of, of nationwide the jobs weren't there. And this, of course, was used to bludgeon him in the 1932 elections. He faced several problems during the Depression years. Um, one of the biggest problems is that everything that could have been done to mitigate the problem would have been needed to start several years prior when he was Secretary of Commerce, and of course he was not in the position to make that happen. Uh, one of the problems was the drought of the 1930s, which became known as the Dust Bowl. Years before this had happened, Hoover had recommended farmers start planting cover crops like clover to replenish soil nutrients. Uh, for future planting. The problem he faced there is that following the boom years of the war, all the crops were purchased, all, like, all the crops that were purchased for cash to feed Europe uh, were now excess crops <coughs> that couldn't be sold, for which they blamed Hoover. And this was in the 1920s because everything was a boom. The uh, countries that needed it couldn't necessarily afford to buy it because the depression was starting overseas already. So when, as Secretary of Commerce, he recommended they reduce planting and plant cover crops, the farmers ignored him. Uh, he also recommended farmers create local collectives for bargaining purposes, which was, again, ignored. The, only, the other thing he did that more or less sealed his fate as a one-term president was signing the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930. This created a slew of protectionist tariffs right at a time when taxes and tariffs should have been lowered. Um, and, and he knew that higher taxes hit the working man harder. All right, he, he did know that, um, but he, he should have vetoed the bill, and he didn't. He signed it in. Uh, Great Britain took the pound off the gold standard. That didn't help, and Hoover managed, basically by dint of his earned reputation as a man of his word, to convince the rest of the global nations that America would not be going off the gold standard, at least not on his watch. We're going to talk more about that when we get to FDR. But it was a very near thing. When uh, England pulled the pound, there was a run on banks and gold deposits dwindled for a while. Uh, a run on our banks. People were like, oh crap, if England's pulling the gold standard, then America's going to follow. And so they, they drained our gold supplies for a while. And the overarching global depression, depression didn't help. The other countries were unable to buy those goods that, from America because they had no money to make purchases. I mean, America basically had everything it needed to survive. At least this is my basic understanding. We're going to learn more about this in the next month. Uh, in the 1930s, we're a self-sustained nation. We were fully capable of manufacturing our own goods and services. But the stock market crashed and caused a massive panic. Unions grew stronger, and um, that's not necessarily bad. And, and Hoover was actually a pro-union man up to a point. What started to sway him away from unions was actually the 1930s, and specifically a veterans' union. And again... He supported our veterans. What he didn't support were, was the veterans union that backed him into a corner and uh, from, he couldn't escape from it. So what happened is when the Great War ended, money had been put in an account to accrue interest and be paid out to veterans of that war in 1945. When the crash happened, the veterans wanted their withdrawals now, uh, not in 1945. 
and uh, they, they, they uh, okay, the veterans wanted their withdrawals now, not at the current value of the account, but at what the accounts would be worth in 1945. So they wanted the government to speculate what the interest rates would do and then pay them now what they thought it would be worth in the future. And Hoover refused. He's like, this, this is impractical. You're going to literally bankrupt the nation. We're barely hanging on by a thread. Um, he offered a compromise to assist some of the hardest hit veterans with withdrawals at current values. But the veterans assisted they all needed to be paid now, including those who were wealthy and didn't need the money. So that refusal to immediately bow to union demands would be used by the Democrats for the next six election cycles that only ended when Eisenhower was voted into office. And I mean that literally. For the next six election cycles, the Democrats didn't even run against whoever the actual Republican nominee was. They ran against Hoover. Um, even when he wasn't running. So 1932, sure, that would make sense. He was a presidential candidate. Uh, but 19... 36, 1940, 44, 48, they basically ignored whoever the Republicans put up and pointed the finger at Hoover, even when he wasn't running. And of course, FDR won in 32 uh, by running an absolute smear campaign against Hoover that was so grotesque, unfair, and uncalled for that Hoover was unable to forgive FDR for it. And Hoover forgave everybody everything. It was part of his Quaker heritage. If, if a sincere apology was offered, he was a very forgiving man. Um, FDR was not sincere, he never apologized, and his New Deal did not end the Depression. And there's a great deal of evidence that his policies exacerbated it, although we're going to explore that topic more fully in the coming month. Hoover certainly believed that FDR's policies exacerbated the Depression, and uh, he took to writing, became a prolific writer. The man who barely passed English composition in college pu published several books in his day, and one quite posthumously. Uh, Freedom Betrayed was published in 2011, so 50 years after he died. The reason for the delay is that the book dismantles FDR's policies while in office, and Hoover's heirs were worried that it might stir up bad feelings when published. And so it was delayed and delayed and delayed, and then finally published in 2011. Now, in the first eight years of FDR's presidency, Hoover warned FDR was a power-hungry megalomaniac. He, he absolutely saw that Roosevelt would just run and run and run, all right? And I know a lot of people say, oh, well, we, we, you know, he was voted in again because war, we were at war, and we needed, and he, you don't switch horses midstream, right? Well, no, because America wasn't at war until 1941, December 7th, 1941, specifically when Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese. FDR ran for his third term in the 1940 election. So he was just a piece of shit who, you know, wanted to keep running and wanted to stay in power. I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't read the FDR book. Maybe he was a nice man and maybe I'm just projecting. Now in the 1930s, Hoover flew to Europe and he did kind of a little tour through Europe and he received something like 11 honorary degrees from continental schools had many streets named after him and met up with European leaders. And during his tour of Europe, he saw the writing on the wall. He knew that he had been absolutely correct that the Treaty of Versailles was setting up the next world war. And uh, while he was there, he did meet with Hitler and Goring. Hitler, interestingly enough, wanted Hoover's respect. Um, Hoover was very polite and diplomatic and kept deflecting, but he saw things were bad and he commented on Hitler's fascism and said, look, this would never work in the United States because you're taking away too many freedoms and America is a free country. 
On his way back to the States, Hoover stopped in England and warned Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain that Germany would be ready for war in 18 months. So that happened in 1938, and Hoover was as prescient as always. Hitler's tanks rolled into Poland on September 1st, 1939, kicking off World War II. Hoover believed that we should stay out of the war until Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, and then he hoped we would, I mean, he agreed that at that point we had to do something, right? You can't just let Japan attack Pearl Harbor. Um, but he hoped we would keep it on the Pacific front only until he found out about the treatment of the Jews. I mean, it's estimated that in his lifetime, the great humanitarian kept some 83 million people from starving to death through his intervention. That's from, what, 1914 until approximately 1950 when things started to really settle in Europe again. So it's a lot of lives saved, man. Now on January 4th, 1944, Lou Hoover suffered a fatal heart attack, which left Hoover absolutely bereft and single for the rest of his life. And, and I mean, he wasn't a complete bastard. He wasn't ungracious. All right. FDR did send a condolence telegram and Eleanor Roosevelt sent a, a heartfelt letter of, of, you know, condolences. And he responded in kind. He wasn't a complete jerk. They weren't totally bitter and hatred, hating each other. Um, they just, there's a lot in here about FDR. There had to be because FDR so vociferously attacked him, but I haven't heard FDR's side of the story. So we're, we'll, we'll, Oh, I, I may or may not be revisiting this. Um, by and large, though, they did not see eye to eye and never, while they had been more or less courteous to each other in the 1920s and, and 19 teens and 1920s, that courtesy went out the window from 1932 and they were never friendly again from that point until FDR's death. Now, uh, he, Hoover resumed his humanitarian efforts during and after the war and remained active in Republican politics until the end of his life, which was October 20th, 1964. And there it is. And what a fucking life, man. I mean, he was orphaned at nine, worked his way through Stanford, traveled the world, earned and gave away an absolute fortune. Most people liked him, including his enemies, with the exception, of course, being FDR. And from what I've read here, I'm almost positive that FDR's enmity was pure jealousy on FDR's point. I mean, Hoover was everything that FDR could never be. And uh, I mean, I kind of agree with the author's assessment. If Hoover had been president at any other time in history, he'd be remembered as one of the greats. It was his misfortune to be sworn in 10 months prior to the country entering the greatest economic catastrophe to that point in history. Not 10 months. Swearing in was in Feb March. What, seven months? Eight months? Yeah. But still, uh, for comparison purposes, and this is important to know for historical purposes also, the market losses in 1929 were roughly $4 billion, which adjusted for inflation is about $72 billion in today's currency. Um, as we learned about the housing crisis in the big short I read a few months ago, it, the housing crisis and crash in 2008 was a loss of $5 trillion. So by any metric you want to use, 2008 was worse than 1929, but they didn't have the distractions we have, right? We have the internet. We have all these movies you can go online and watch for relatively inexpensively. Hollywood, I mean, don't get me wrong, Hollywood tried in the Depression. Out. Um, Hoover never had a chance. He, he just didn't. And it's quite telling that for 20 years he became the boogeyman of the Democratic Party. 26, 26, 24 years. Yeah, yeah, 24 years he became the boogeyman of the Democratic Party. And I, I don't know how to rate him as president because his presidency was doomed practically from the beginning. But as a human being, my God. 
you would be hard-pressed to find anyone else that kept 83 million people from starving to death. That's impressive by any metric you want to use. And uh, that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.